Welcome to a throwback edition of the Social Flight Live podcast, where we feature a special past episode that stood out from all the rest. Join our live broadcast every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a great show for you this evening. Paul Bertarelli is here with us from Aviation Consumer and AvWeb. Uh, it's going to be a really fantastic show. Before uh, we get started, just a couple uh, announcements, of course. First of all, uh, tonight's broadcast will be recorded. Uh, and so uh, if you have any issues, you can always get a look at our YouTube channel. Our YouTube channel, of course, is Social Flight. One word, social flight. And while we're talking about that, of course, be sure to get the free Social Flight mobile app and check out socialflight.com. All free. There are just thousands and thousands of events and uh, destinations, so many things uh, to keep you flying. And that's why we are here. Uh, social Flight is all about helping keeping people flying. Supporting general aviation has been that from the beginning, and we created this show, Social Flight Live, in order to help support general aviation during the crisis and help bring all of us together as a community, do everything that we can to support each other, to support FBOs, airport restaurants, every type of aviation business. And I am just as always encouraging people not just to fly, but if you are considering investing in your aircraft, getting a new headset, anything like that, be sure to, um, to do it now at a time where you can help support our industry, which of course is our passion and is also uh, fairly fragile. And so that's very important. And along those lines, what I'd like to do also is uh, introduce a new segment of some announcements. And uh, we're going to kick that off with, I'm going to look up here and change and show my screen. Uh, we have a little bit of an announcement here, and that is we have a new pilot here, uh, which rounds out our entire group of, uh, of boys here in the social flight house. And that is Ben Simon. He got his ticket. Uh, last Wednesday, right after our show, the day after. So, so excited for him. And uh, as, uh, as part of that, um, we had a, a, got a, a shirt here. And uh, this is actually a shirt from uh, Wild Blue Gear, Rex at wildbluegear.com. And we just thought this was great. This is our home airport, Minuteman Airfield, six Bravo six, and uh, two sons, three pilots, one left seat. And uh, of course, uh, that's the challenge that we're now going to be facing is who actually gets to fly the plane. And so now that means uh, all three of us, myself and both boys, Jake and Ben, have our licenses. And so what I'd like to do is invite all of you, uh, send me your messages. Let's have some announcements of people during this time when there's so much bad news out there. Uh, and uh, of course, it's getting colder around the country with the winter coming on and darker. Let Tell me your stories, send me information, and I'll bring it to you here on the show. I got uh, information from uh, Herb Carlson, who sent a message here about, two pilot, uh, about a new pilot that he's aware of, Kelly Cassandra, uh, and uh, her instructor, Captain Bob, and uh, so new pilot there. If you uh, have a new rating, if you know of someone who's a new pilot, they want to be announced here on the show, just send the information. It's info, I-N-F-O, at socialflight.com. 
com. And we'd be absolutely happy, uh, thrilled um, to help do that because, again, it's all about lifting uh, everyone up that's part of general aviation. Now, uh, in a departure from my usual introduction, uh, Mr. Bertarelli's staff, handlers, and attorneys uh, have asked that I read the following uh, as his introduction. Uh, Paul Bertarelli is editor-at-large for the Belvoir Media Group Aviation Division, which means that he was given a nebulous title because they couldn't figure out what else to do with him. In his long journalism career, which is marred by unexplained gaps, he's been a newspaper reporter, a magazine writer and editor, and as of late, a bumbling videographer, with an audience, though, of like-minded misfits so bored as to click on anything. He is unique for having graduated from the University of Maryland journalism program with 119 credits. Uh, despite this, he managed to earn an ATP and CFII and other equally impressive letters and uh, unfortunately did miss winning the 1979 Pulitzer Prize by a lot. Um, he lives at an undisclosed location in Florida, but in all seriousness, uh, there, and I will go and bring him on the line now, in all seriousness, um, uh, there is no aviation journalist that I hold in higher esteem than Paul Bertarelli. I never miss one of his articles. I am proud to call him a friend, and I'm thrilled to have him here as our guest on Social Flight Live. Welcome, Paul. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you very much. I wish I could turn flattery into money. I'd be rich. <laughs> It is. It is very honestly uh, given. I'll, I'll tell you, it really is true. I, th I every every time that you write something, I read it, and uh, for so many reasons, whether it be the fascinating history uh, that you bring, the perspective you bring to different uh, articles, or the research that you uh, really put into things. And and what I'd like to do is kind of start here. I don't think a lot of people really know what your background is and how you kind of became the Paul Bertarelli that. Um, that we all know. And, and so uh, tell me a little bit about how you got involved in aviation and how you, how you uh, came to this part. Well, you know, I, I, I'd love to say that I planned it this way, but uh, I think for a lot of us in life, things happen by random chance. And it, it sort of did for me. I had a, uh, an interest in aviation. I started flying when I was uh, 18 in the military club at Fort Bragg and uh, got my private, and uh, then I went off to, uh, when I got out of the Army, I went off to the University of Maryland, went to journalism school, worked in newspapers, worked in magazines, and uh, in various fields. And then uh, in 1990, I guess, I joined uh, a Belvoir because they, they uh, had an opening for an editor. Uh, I had the journalism expertise and I had the aviation expertise. And at that point I was getting back into flying uh, more intensively. I, I was instructing and I was flying charter. So I was pretty active uh, and uh, here I am. So what, now what, what military branch did you, uh, were you in? Army. Excellent. And, and that was with the flying club. And what were you flying at that time? Uh, you know, those were the days uh, when leaseback was hot, and we had one uh, fifties. Uh, uh, the one fifty two hadn't appeared yet, but the but the interesting thing is that uh, 
these new things called new airplanes would show up about every few months because it was when leaseback was a thing, it was popular and economical to do that. So we had about maybe a dozen airplanes, I guess. And um, you show up to the flying club one day, there'd be a brand new airplane out there. Uh, could be a, a 150. That's uh, where I was introduced to the uh, Cardinal, the Cessna 177, and also the uh, uh, the Yankee, if you remember that, when it first came out, uh, kind of a nightmare. Uh, but but it was fun. I mean, it, uh, those were the years when uh, general aviation was booming. Uh, you know, it, every year was it was a it was a growth uh, industry. So, but you know, of course, at the time we didn't know that we didn't know any better because as the industry uh, matured and reached its peak, things started to decline. And now you go out on the flight line, <laughs> you know, and if if it's a mid eighties one seventy two, hey, this one's kind of new. <laughs> but in those days you know the ashtrays got full they traded them in and they did have ashtrays and people did smoke that must have been i i can't even imagine i mean you know you see the closest that we come to it now right is you go into the fbo bathroom and you see the old ads up or something like that um you know justifying the the brand new airplane and and for some strange reason i will say they all seem to involve fishing I, i'm not quite sure what that's all about Fishing or a lake or some sophisticated travel somewhere. But, you know, we had none of that in those days that, that I recall. We had this uh, ratty old shack. It was on Simmons Army Airfield. And we, we had this crummy old shack that had probably been there since the 30s. The roof leaked. And uh, we had uh, a few civil instructors. And we had a number of... Uh, returning uh, Vietnam helicopter pilots who were and fixed wing pilots who were instructors as well. Um, this is not necessarily a good thing uh, because their uh, standards of risk were quite different than the rest of us. <laughs> but it was, it was, it was an eye opener. I certainly enjoyed it. And it was a real opportunity because it was cheap. You know, it was, uh, I don't know, $7 an hour for the airplane or something. It was really inexpensive. And at what point did you become an instructor during that? Uh, not then. I didn't uh, get into instructing until probably the late 80s. So your charter, uh, you, so you said you did some charter stuff before that? Yeah. No, it was all about the same time. Mm. Um, when, I, when I got a little bit more income and could afford to uh, fly more, I got into a club and uh flew a lot and i got uh i got the cfi and the double i and the mei and all the rest of it and, and at that point i started to do a little charter and freight flying so tell me about your your journalism background uh both before and then as you transitioned into aviation was that always your focus aviation uh the uh, journalism actually well, um, yeah, I, I I went to journalism school. When I got out of the Army, I, I, I decided, yeah, I wanted to, to go into journalism, and I wanted to do either newspapers or maybe broadcast journalism. I wasn't really sure. And so I went to the University of Maryland, and they had a very good internship program there. So 
uh, I was able to uh, get a job on a newspaper, uh, an internship first, then a full-time job. And then I did that for four years. And uh, uh, I, I was also uh, uh, skilled in woodworking. So I, I had a cabinet shop, my own cabinet shop for oh, wow. uh, three or four years. And then that transitioned into another journalism do- job with a company called Ton Press, who uh, published a magazine called Fine Woodworking. And I, I was there for, uh, say, about nine years, I guess, and, and became editor of that magazine. And then Excellent. after that, at, at the end of that, I was getting involved in aviation again. So I transitioned back into aviation and then started doing aviation journalism. And that was around 1990. And so what was that first break that got you into aviation journalism? I guess it was Belvoir. Uh, Belvoir had an opening. Uh, I came on board to do uh, IFR magazine at the time. Uh, the the editor they had was uh, transitioning to something else, and uh, they needed an editor, so I took it over. And then after that, it was uh, Aviation Consumer. I did both of them for several years. Uh, and then there was just consumer and it was consumer and AbWeb. We, we bought AbWeb in 2002 and became editorial director of that. And I've been involved in that since then. And, uh, things just sort of fall into place. None of it, of course, planned. <laughs> I think that's kind of all our paths, right? We just kind you of, know, you just keep somebody asked me, like fun. what do you expect to be doing in five years? I would have said, I don't know, breathing. I'm not, I have no <laughs> idea. I'm just not quite that ambitious you know one of the things that that um i find fascinating of course is that the the aviation media as a whole um and i understand it's it's passion based but it it doesn't seem to there isn't a lot of meat in terms of people really comparing aircraft or really telling you what they think about anything uh that really is exclusively reserved for aviation consumer and and the work that you do, there doesn't seem to be much much in between. Um, tell me a little bit about about consumer and working for them, and 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 why you think the landscape is the way it is. Well, c- consumer is an interesting animal. Uh, it was started in uh, I think the year was 1972 by a guy named Jim Holleran, who uh, had a journalism background and uh, was involved in aviation um and he decided uh he he reacted the same way you did to the established aviation press at the time which was uh pretty much uh, lack of a better word lapdog it was advertising supported uh and in those days uh dick wigman used to tell me he, he was the second editor of uh Consumer used to tell me the the manufacturers would uh, throw you the keys to a new airplane and an expense account for gas and all the rest of it, and you know have have the airplane for a month or however long they had it and review it. Well, obviously that was going to get good positive reviews, and it did. So that that's part of the way they marketed those airplanes. They don't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> For, That'd be for, a pretty, for very, pretty good, pretty good game. Choice. So anyway, Holleran thought that, uh, you know, what this really needs is a consumer type, uh, a consumer reports type publication 
for aviation. So he started Consumer, and it was a uh, subscriber-supported only publication uh, that marketed through direct mail, and uh, they, they. they built pretty good circulation and it continued to grow throughout the seventies and eighties, I think. And Belvoir bought it around, uh, I'm going to guess around 76 or 77, uh, Robert Englander bought it. And that, that became the first publication of a number of subscriber based publications, both in aviation. We have a pet division, we have a medical division, we have quite a large number of publications, uh, plus plus all the web publications, um, and it was uh, established a, a reputation for being a good straight shooting publication that did uh, critical reporting, uh, that did comparative reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, got got into trouble a lot. Uh, but that's sort of the way it was supposed to work. I mean, it it worked uh, more like a newspaper than the than the uh, slick magazines. They they worked more like uh, I won't say shoppers, but the, but but they didn't have the newspaper ethos that consumer did. Right, and I mean, and in, in essence, every, everything I've ever read of yours, I mean, is is really uh, journalistic. Uh, you're getting stories. Yeah. Uh, well, it's uh, my training and basically what I was taught to do in the, in the background. And, uh, you know, in defense of my colleagues uh, on the other publications, they do that too. They just do it a little bit differently. It's, it doesn't have quite the same tone uh, that consumer does. Uh, they don't do as much uh, hard edged comparison as we do. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's just that's just the nature of those publications, and they do a lot, a lot more soft, featurey stuff, right? Um, it, because it, it seems perceive what the audience wants, right? It it seems to me, and I don't really know the the answer of this, but uh, it, but it seems to me that um, if we were to compare something like like the automotive industry or motorcycles or or any number of other different passions there there's there seems to be some room for middle ground i mean a lot of things do have kind of like shootouts of different brands or uh and and which kind of come down where they it doesn't even have to be just aircraft it could be anything and they and they kind of help steer people with this is really good for this kind of person or this is really good for that kind of use um and um, and and it seems like we don't see a ton of that. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, consumers very very hardcore. We're not supported by advertising, and we're really going to tell you what you think. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground. What do you think the reason is for that? Um, you know, I I think it probably has to do with tradition because if you look at the automotive enthusiast magazines, uh, say like Car and Driver, they do shootouts. Uh, when it was in print, so did motorcyclists, uh, so did Cycle World. Uh, they did that sort of thing. Uh, again, not with a hard edge, but sometimes it did. Um, and in aviation, I think, you know, because it, a lot of it uh, uh, grew out of popular flying. And popular flying was, a, which I guess became flying, was an uh, enthusiast publication. It wasn't started as a journalistic type publication and and also uh you know the 
aviation journalism is just vastly overserved. I mean, it's there are far more publications for a universe that is at best in stasis, but is in fact probably in decline. Mm. Um, and before, I know it's in decline. If you, if you look at the number of uh, pilots, it's been when I started, I think when I started with consumers around 800 and something thousand, and now it's down to 600 and something. And it may have just leveled off recently. I haven't, I haven't actually looked at the numbers in, in the past few years. So there may be a, a little bit of stasis or, or slight growth there, but yeah, tons of publications uh, mm-hmm. chasing very few advertising dollars. Uh, and, and you've got, just social media coming out the yin yang. I mean, everywhere you look, there's another YouTube channel on aviation or some kind of site on aviation or something like that. And again, it's related to passion. People mm-hmm. are interested in stuff and you know, the barriers to entry are a lot lower than they used to be. Um, so uh, just all this competition. Yeah, no, that def- definitely makes sense. I think there's, there's, obviously we're all pulling for the industry. Right. And, and so it's not like, like people want to go take shots at, at manufacturers of, of any aircraft or any product. Um, it, I think it's just a, it's just about where are the opportunities, where's the opportunity for different content um, from, from learning more from, I, I was liked, you know, as we said a couple of times about like the shootouts, what's kind of cool about that is even if you're not, doing any hard hitting critical stuff. It's always kind of fun to see what the products really do in the hands of a regular person or a regular pilot. Yeah. Um, and whether it's like I said, even if you're not really picking it apart and trying to tell someone buy this specific one, it's kind of fun to say, well, the average pilot was actually able to land the, the Cherokee versus the, the 172 in this distance or, or things like that, that could, could even just be fun to see. Yeah, it is fun. And, you know, the good thing about um, Consumer and Belvoir in general was uh, they supported that kind of edginess. Uh, and there, there were no sacred cows. I would, I, I would never get a call from the front office to say, hey, you know, lay off on this or don't cover this. or uh, and, and for me, I mean, I will tend to get out towards the edge anyway, so uh, I don't need much encouragement. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they provided it, and that, that's what's made it such a great place to, to work is that, um, you know, creatively you, you could do just whatever you wanted or whatever needed to be done. Uh, and, and enough resources were there, just enough. I mean, we're small company, small publications. We don't have a ton of resources, but – but enough to get it done. And right. Well, know, I mean, I, that, uh, that's two years ago. I, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, it's all been, always been the hallmark of, of your writing on, on those things as, as well. And, and some of the key ones that come to mind that you've tackled have been, for example, the, the, the Cirrus shoot and, and most recently the uh, ELTs. Mm-hmm. Um, but you put a lot of research into these. Tell me a little bit about how you develop one of those stories, where they come from, and how do you, how do you go about that? What's your process to getting that data? Because it seems like 
you find this hard data yourself, you build your case yourself. And, and that's one of the things that's so fascinating about your articles. Well, uh, you know, it's just basic um, online or interview research uh, for the Cirrus, uh, for the uh, parachute stuff. I have done it twice now. Uh, and I was, uh, you know, I wanted to know, uh, I, I basically set out with a, with a theme and the theme was I wanted to find the data to prove or disprove the notion that the parachute added to the overall safety of the aircraft, that it impacted the accident rate. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you dug at the data, you sure enough, it did. I mean, you could, you could draw the curves and you know what the here, they crossed here and that's where they started doing more training and learning how to, uh, to train, to use the parachute. But, you know, it took Cirrus, it took Cirrus most of, um, a decade to figure that out. I mean, it took a long time uh, because Cirrus had a pretty mediocre safety record when it first started, but you had to really dig at the numbers to get at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they were a little resistant to providing the data that I wanted. I basically wanted the hours flown data and they gave me some of it so I could calculate rates. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, I did a, a, a video with that and, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, a 15 or 18 minute video that takes just forever uh, because there's a lot of graphics, there's a lot of editing and, uh, it's just really involved. So a project like that, I'm sure was three weeks worth of work. Uh, and that's, you know, we, we can't do a lot of that because that's a lot of, uh, resource expenditure, but, Every once in a while, I can carve time to find a way to do it. I'm I'm working on one now on uh, engine failures. Mm. Actually, I've already I've already done the article, uh, and I'm I'm working on the video now. Tell um, me a little bit about the ELT one because you know, in the case of the shoot, the 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 basic data and your answer seemed to come back about the that it has some very very significant value. The the ELT one, you're really kind of challenging the establishment a little bit. And pushing in the other direction. Well, yeah, you know, because um, and and I suffered from this too. You make this assumption that, gee, it's great to have an ELT. If I crash, someone will come find me, and therefore, it's worth. Well, now with the four hundred sixes, it's you know grand to put one of them in, or or more maybe. So you just automatically assume, well, this thing works. But when you go into the accident data and and you start pushing it around, say, well, you know, this thing doesn't work that often. From the beginning, when ELTs first appeared in the early seventies, they were terrible. I mean, they 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 didn't fire or they misfired when they weren't supposed to. They weren't able to find them, and it was a pretty poor record. It got a little better, but but not a lot. And then the 406 came along, and they were sold as uh, the Great White Hope. And yeah, they were better, but but not great. And um, so you know, I found that uh, they were only marginally better than the 121.5. Uh, you were spending a lot more money for them. Um, and you know my my axe to grind was that Cub has an old uh, 
121.5 ELT. And it's on its last legs. It, you know, I can still buy batteries for it, but, uh, and I have to have one. So I'm going to put a thousand dollar four or six into this thing. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think it's worth that kind of investment. And then in the intervening years, come to find out that I called CAP and said, you know, we don't really, we don't really use ELTs to find airplanes that much anymore. <laughs> they do, uh, they do cell phone forensics and they use ADSB. And so uh, airplane disappears. You know, the CAP guy on a Sunday morning, sipping coffee in his underwear can do the ADSB search and pretty effectively pin down where the airplane disappeared uh, without having to revert to uh, an ELT. Hmm. And uh, uh, same thing with uh, cell phone forensics. They, the CAP has a terrific cell phone forensics uh, uh, capability, and, and, and they can find hikers and airplanes and all kinds of things uh, with cell phone forensics. So all of that has displaced the uh, – the ELT is a big player here and they fly, if I'm recalling correctly, I think they once flew as recently as 10 or 12 years ago, 20,000 hours a year in search. And now they fly about 2000. So it's, it's, a, wow. it's a lot less. And, um, I mean, it's not to really bad mouth the 406. Don't get one. Uh, if it works right, you'll, you'll be found pretty quickly. Usually. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's susceptible to the same problems they've always been. They get damaged in the crash or the antenna breaks off or it just doesn't go off. Right. Well, so I just wanted, I wanted to find the, the data on that and find out what the numbers actually were. And it was kind of surprising. Yeah. It, I found it to be really a fascinating article. And, and you know, the, when I look at the, there've been so many different trends uh, that you've covered and that others have covered in the industry that, had some controversy to them also or, or developments. And um, as you mentioned, you, you've had the support to be able to do some of that. I mean, one of those that comes to mind, of course, is if we go back in time to the whole VLJ um, revolution, when people thought and were saying, Hey, these new small jets, he's going to darken the skies. I forget whose quote that was. Um, and yeah, Bert, uh, Bert Rutan told me I interviewed him and it was, it would have been about 19, uh, 99 or 2000, somewhere in there about VLJs, you know, they were starting to break ground. And, and I asked him uh, what, what he thought the yearly production of these things was going to be. And he said about 20,000. And I said, we're going to have a parking problem here. <laughs> and, and, and the reason he thought that it's kind of the same reason that other people thought it because these new technologies were coming online, uh, inexpensive commuter, uh, com uh, computer numerical control was coming online. You can make ch parts a lot cheaper. Uh, and they, uh, they made a, a, a number of mistakes. One of which was, uh, they vastly underestimated how much it would cost to produce them. And they vastly overestimated, A, the size of the market based on the lower prices and didn't accept that the real price, which was always $2 million, 
would produce a traditional markets. And that's, of course, what happened with uh, Eclipse mm-hmm. uh, because they, they, uh, they thought they were going to – do you remember the original come on price of that airplane? I do. $827,000, which, which uh, you know, is the price of a Malibu. They're going to darken the skies. You can't get a bonanza for that, I don't think, right now. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they had it all figured out how they were, how their production was going to be, you know, uh, just vastly more efficient. Well, what they, they didn't realize, and which everyone has to learn, every airplane manufacturer or anybody making serial production has to learn. Serial production is like impossible to understand until you figured it out. Uh, producing a lot of one thing. And if it's an airplane, uh, it's very difficult. And airplanes are a lot easier to build than cars. And, it, you know, it took uh, it de- Detroit a long, long time to figure out how to build cars efficiently. But once they did, they got really efficient at it. Uh, but mm-hmm. air- the airplane manufacturers have really, really never figured that out because they haven't had the volume to support the investment they need to make that happen. But uh, at Eclipse, and VLJs in general, maybe with the exception of Cessna, it was just one production problem after another that they couldn't get all together and solve to really all come together at once. And, you know, looking at it at a distance, you know, I should talk to people in the business, say, yeah, this, we could have told you this. I mean, this, what they're trying to do is just about impossible. Wasn't it early, early on in that, that uh, I think I'm trying to remember who was it was. I think it was at flying that uh, came out and said, not going to happen and got all sorts. Yeah. It was Mac McClellan. He's he. Yeah, that's right. Mac. He said, uh, I want to believe this, but I'm pretty skeptical of it. Uh, I, that didn't go over well. No, it didn't. Uh, but, but it was a good analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very good. It, it, it was he turned out to be right. He turned out to be right. Uh, at the time, I I didn't really have a a, a view on it. Uh, I I uh, I I looked went back recently looked at my coverage and uh, I, I kind of said I think we'll see. Um, I I just couldn't really develop a good feel for it. Um, now, if you look at the other end of the spectrum, a similar argument and a similar case could be made when we look at the LSA market and, and, and the idea of, of sport pilots and, and all of, all of that side, tell me a little bit about what you think happened there and what happened with people's coverage. And it's kind of the same model in a way at the other end of the market. Well, the assumption there was uh, on the part of the FAA and the industry was that you would uh, expand the market by offering by allowing the industry to produce simpler, cheaper airplanes. And the audiences tended to think cheaper, you know, $40,000. None of the manufacturers ever said that. And if you, if you go back to, you know, 2002, 2003, when this was starting to come out of the ground, they weren't saying we're going to build a $40,000 airplane. The goal was to build a less expensive, less complex, easier to certify or approve airplane. And they did that. They basically all did that. Uh, but it turned out that uh, 
and you, and you can look across the board, those airplanes are going to sell for between 130 and $180,000. And, People will constantly complain about that and say, well, LSAs didn't live up to the billing. But at those prices, they're a third or a quarter of the price of a new certified piston airplane. So I maintain that they did exactly what they set out to do. Um, again, the size of the market is just not there. And there are too many players for too many potential sales. It's completely overserved. Uh, there aren't, uh, there just uh, aren't a lot of, of buyers and there aren't any real barriers for anyone coming into it. So you've still got over a hundred uh, manufacturers who could be said to be producing light sport airplanes. I think that, that one of the things that's also uh, I have found interesting about that part of the market is um that that you the original idea or at least the original marketing for it seemed like this expansion was going to come with a younger audience with flight schools with all these other things and the reality i think of of the people that i saw flying these and buying these aircraft uh were actually people sunsetting their flying career yeah. and coming down to them and that that was very different, I think, than, than what everyone was saying was going to happen in the industry, because that's not revolutionizing the industry by by having people transition out of other GA aircraft down. No, it isn't. Uh, and, you know, what what some foresaw, but not a lot foresaw, was that these guys flying around Bonanzas would age out. Uh, they would realize, hey, I don't need an airplane this sophisticated or this capable. I've got enough money. So, uh, and I'm worried about my medical or I already lost my medical. I think I'll just go into an LSA. And a lot of the companies, uh, I forget one of the companies I talked to recently said 50% of their sales were what they called step downs. Hmm. Uh, and to, I guess it's a more polite term than sunset. <laughs> well, call it what you want. I mean, it's, uh, but it did attract, um, it did attract some younger people, just not the large numbers that anyone thought. Uh, because if you if you look at the total number of registered light sport airplanes since the segment started, it's around 4,000, I think. Mm -hmm. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. And it looks to be, it's, I think, maybe around 300 a year or something like that in the uh, U.S. Another... Um thing that seems to be a factor in that it seems to be the basic med and that even that that trend of step down was a little bit undermined by by basic med helping keep people in the planes that they had yeah and that that's probably a, a discernible trend uh, i think aopa has done some research on it um and that's um Good and bad, I guess, you know, because you, you had a pretty good market churn going, which was benefiting the light sport manufacturers. And, you know, the good thing about light sport airplanes is they're fairly innovative. I mean, you see more innovation there than you do in certified airplanes because they don't have the barriers, the difficulty in doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you get a fairly capable airplane for not that much money. Mm-hmm. 
You know, so yeah. you can look at a well-equipped, um, like a flight design or uh, maybe a sport cruiser or something like that, or uh, um, one of the uh, uh, Cubcrafters airplanes. And you look at the panel, man, that has all the capabilities. You know, if it's got a, a Garmin G3 in it or something like that, it has all the capabilities of a Cirrus that costs most of a million dollars. Mm. I mean, you're not, it doesn't legally have the uh, instrument capabilities. And that's kind of a gray area, but uh, it could have. It's just yeah. that, uh, you know, we're, we're just kind of reticent to admit that, hey, this thing can do this. What have you, what, what are your, beliefs as to why it, those never really hit the training market in any substantial way. I mean, we thought of course that Cessna would be able to do it with the Skycatcher. Um, and, and I've heard a variety of different things from places as to, well, why we don't see fleet operations at a large scale, it, why they're not the savior of the flight school, which you would think they have the potential to be. couple things. Uh, the first is price. So if I've got a flight school and uh, I want to have, uh, say I want to have three airplanes out there, I can find uh, probably a service of 152 for $60,000. I can, maybe less, probably less. I can find a serviceable couple of 172s for under 100 each. Maybe not now, but uh, a few years ago, the prices are getting bidded up now. So, you know, I can get these three airplanes out there for, I don't know, $200,000. If you go with a light sport, well, you know, you're going to end up spending $150,000 for the light sport. It's newer. It's more expensive to insure. Uh, so if you want three of them, you're going to spend a lot more. And mm -hmm. then you have, to rent, you have to rent them for more money because – you have to get a return on the investment. And the second thing is durability. The flight schools had really bad experiences with the light sports just not being up to the daily rigors of, you know, touch and goes and all the rest of the things that students have to do. And they just broke a lot. And because, because <laughs> I don't think they, they were beat up. No, uh, I think the designers imagined that they would be okay for training, but they didn't understand what training was. <laughs> and and so, you know, the ones that were coming from Eastern Europe, they had trouble getting parts and the airplanes were down. And, you know, and then you had the, the, the Rotax engine, which people love to hate for no good reason because it's a great engine. Um, so this is a lot of things you know, that came together and you're seeing more of it now. You're seeing more acceptance of, of light sport, but as long as those one fifties and one fifty twos and one seventy twos are out there and they seem to be, it's going to be uh, a tough thing to do. You know, but during the pandemic, I've been watching uh, flight aware and mm -hmm. uh, see what's flying. And so I get up in the morning is very common that the, Number one airplane flying type is a 172. Yep. By a lot. More than the Airbuses, more than the 737s, more than anything else, often by a lot. 
one morning I got up and there were, I don't know, 700 of them flying. And the nearest closest airplane was the Airbus, uh, I think 320 with like 555 or something. Hmm. Now this is new because of the pandemic, because airline flying is down, but it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. Yeah, uh, you know the the other thing that that was a trend that came and and seems to have you know gone away was the idea of ref, of refurbishing or as new aircraft. We saw and seen some of that come, you know, Panther Dakotas or turnkeys and uh, and things like that, uh, where people were essentially trying to make new. And it almost makes you wonder what would have happened if Cessna started producing 152s again or something like that. Like, would that have had any impact? I guess you have to ask what it would cost. And um, I did ask Jack Pelton that once. Uh, I said, you know, that we're selling all these used uh, 152s. What would a uh, 152 cost now? A senior call is around 300000 Oh, my God. Yeah, it was a lot. 300000 to produce a, a 152 these days if you were to put it back into production? Yeah, well, look at some of the light sports. Some of the light sports approach that. Um, I mean, look at the, um, uh, let's see, what was that? The Icon. The Icon is right. The Icon costs as much as a 172 now. It's about yeah. a $380,000 airplane. And the Icon was. Uh, that was 110 at one point. <laughs> yeah, it was under. It was 80, 89 or something. And that was that was designed for production. It was designed to be efficient, um, but for various reasons related to difficulty of serial production and lack of volume, the price of it is four times what it started out to be. Mm. So, so I don't, I don't think it could. The, the business case for the one fifty two would be tough. Now we have seen uh, at, we have seen some some pretty pretty remarkable technology recently on the market. Uh, ADSB obviously had a major impact, but now we've gone to the next level. When you start seeing you know uh, the Garmin version of, of Auto Land in a bunch of in, in a variety of different aircraft, it seems like um, it seems like there's some some revolutionary things starting to happen that could affect the future of GA a little bit. What are your thoughts on that? I know. What do you see? Because I don't, I don't see that, uh, that, that revolutionary uh, shapeshifter out there. Um, so because, you don't think you know, that like auto land or anything will have any major impacts down the road to uh, it's mar it's marginal because, uh, if you look at, uh, but this funny thing about Autoland, uh, you know, I was talking to Nick Chabert at uh, uh, Dyer about this. I said, is this uh, a sales lever for you? He says, yeah, it's huge. But not like huge, we're going to sell 50 more airplanes. It's huge, like it'll be easier to sell the ones we already sell plus a few more. Right, um, right. Because, you know, what What does it do? It's a between-the-ears thing. It's mm -hmm. uh, it, it 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 makes the spouse comfortable and maybe the pilot who's not sure about his own capabilities comfortable. But beyond that, it's not a direct safety enhancer necessarily. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not, uh, you, you know, my, my thought on, 
on AutoAM was, you know, what you really need to do is figure out a way that this can be used routinely. But don't you think that's where it's going? I think it's, it may be. It may be, but uh, I don't see that uh, as a big market expander uh, for owner-flown general aviation. Because you're no, also waiting, waiting in the wings as you've got all these autonomous aircraft. And, right. And we don't, we don't know what effect they're going to have. But they're, they're not going to be um, – the autonomous aircraft, they'll be the new GA, but they won't be appealing to guys like you and me. Right. Right. But it is interesting if it turns into something that ends up being like, hey, if you want to, it just, you know, does a lot more yeah. in terms of flying or what it what it really means, as opposed to being the electronic equivalent of a chute. But it, you're right. You know, you have a really interesting point about it being like a little bit of a bump. And anecdotally, at least I know we have one individual was a, a guy was a guest on the show early on who has an M600 and he traded in his two year old one for the new one and obviously i'm guessing wrote a very large check to go with it specifically and only just to upgrade so that it has the safe land and um my guess is that uh, or he may have said that that is for first family yeah and and that's why i think you'll get some uh, marginal incremental sales out of that um but you won't uh i could be wrong but I don't think you'll double the volume because of auto land. Cause I don't so think that's, that's not a barrier to people buying the airplanes. There are other barriers. Yeah. Now uh, going back to the, the kind of like the, the media landscape just for a minute, it seems like there's something really interesting going on. That I'd love to hear your thoughts on. And that is we have this um, uh, both established and, and also, you know, key figures in our, in our media that, that, we're used to going to the audience of people who uh, are buying airplanes or already flying airplanes, et cetera. And then there's this disconnect that you meant to this audience that you mentioned earlier, which is YouTube and, and all the social media out there and their numbers are uh, amazing, right? I mean, the numbers of people following them and watching them and all sorts of things, but it would seem that the percentage of those people actually participating in general aviation, becoming pilots or being consumers of the products of the companies who sell in this market may not be the same audience at all. Um, <laughs> they aren't. I see this all the time on our YouTube channel. You know, I'll put up a, uh, I do videos sometimes. I've learned to make them have a kind of a general appeal, even though they're kind of sharply focused on, on, the high tech end of uh, of aviation and and are are technically in depth and um, but I have fun with it you know I make jokes all the rest of it and uh, I will get a lot of comments that say I don't know anything about aviation I don't plan to become a pilot but I watch this stuff because it's interesting it's entertaining mm-hmm. and there's a lot of that and so you see these. Uh, YouTube channels uh, with 250,000 or 300,000 and you see, you know, a couple of million uh, views, it means nothing <laughs> as far as general aviation is concerned. Try, try, you think, try you look at that, you look at that and you say, wow, man, that's just like an untapped market. If we could just figure it out, well, those people aren't going to buy airplanes. Well, it's not just airplanes, right? It's avionics, uh, engines, yeah. parts. Yeah. 
Um, you know, yeah. everything that goes with it. And, and the funny thing is it puts a smile on my face because, you know, we all in this industry, including Social Flight, of course, are, are sponsor supported. And uh, sponsors uh, and, and all of the companies that have marketing departments, uh, obviously, a lot of these people look at these numbers and see well, huge, huge I, numbers I, of YouTubers. I don't want to say that uh, there isn't selling through social media because there is, there definitely is. And, and some are quite successful at it, but as a big market expander in, in terms of bringing people in to become pilots, uh, I, I don't see it some, but, but not the game changer you would imagine from looking at the, at the numbers. Right. And it probably makes a difference what you're selling, right? I mean, if you're in a market of selling headsets and a lot of these uh, folks are going to start, uh, uh, start their training or do something like that, then that's, that's, that's a much lower bar to yeah, entry than, or, if, than or, if you're out there trying to sell a, a million dollar aircraft. Right. Or, you know, or, or avionics or you're selling flight bags or stuff like that. You know, then I think you're getting some penetration from <laughs> social media, but in the broader respect of, of just dragging people into the field who wouldn't have otherwise some, but not commensurate with, with the audience participation that you see. Right. So I see this all the time, you know, and, I, and I, I'm not an evangelist. I don't try to say, oh, you know, you got to learn to f fly. And because one of them, uh, I, I made a comment. It was on the one on LSA crashes. I said, uh, if you're a pilot and I hope you are, and then I went on with it and just dozens of comments. Well, I guess I know I'm not wandering around here. <laughs> And it was just, it really showed me how many people were, were not in aviation at all. They're just watching this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I do the same thing on YouTube. You know, I click on things. How the hell did I get here? Um, <laughs> Cause YouTube wanted you to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Paul, obviously we're here, you know, in this show because of the crisis, because of everything that's happening in general aviation. Against this backdrop, though, when this this is hopefully, of course, a, a transient time, but against this draft backdrop, we still had all of the predictions of a, of a ultimately a, a crisis of having enough pilots and everyone and everything involved in aviation mechanics pilots etc even to support regular commercial air travel eventually where do you think we stand and where do you think we're going in the uh in the next 10 years man i don't know jeff uh i was just looking at the tsa numbers today you know there was a big uh big push and a big rise over the thanksgiving uh holiday of air travel but it's only it's not even 40 percent of what it was a year ago um and so all right so we're looking ahead to this vaccine and i think the vaccine is uh is a, being a bit oversold in its immediacy and, and how will it affect things uh <coughs> excuse me i don't think it'll affect things that fast and this has been such a wrenching uh deep-seated impact that I think there are structural changes in the uh, in, in the economy and in business airline and business find that won't be evident for quite some time and it'll take a number of years to figure out that it's not coming back to where it was for quite a while mm -hmm. because people 
people have made transitions. You know, the, a lot of businesses said, you know what, we really don't need to travel this much. Uh, we can save money by not doing it. And, you know, they've got Zoom conferences and all the rest of it. Uh, and they've just, just cut back on that kind of thing. And that's a real profit center for the airlines. And I also think that uh, leisure travel will be impacted by it, too. People will say, you know what, we, we can do other things. We don't, we don't have to fly to places. So it could be quite some time in the recovery that Tampa Airport did a market study and they thought the recovery would be, I think this is right, would, would be 2024. They would be back to where they were when this started. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's fairly realistic. Uh, and in fact, maybe optimistic. And so even so that against means- that backdrop, though, we still have a challenge of attrition in pilots. Mm-hmm. And, and so even if, even if that's true, or even if you push it out to 2025 or 2026 against that backdrop, are we really staffing uh, to even support that? I don't know. Um, you know, the, the flight schools are still busy. They're still training. Embry-Riddle is still going at it. Uh, Florida Institute of Technology, all these uh, flight schools down here, even the smaller ones are still going at it pretty hard. So I think they're continuing to fill the pipeline with the idea that uh, it's going to sort out in the short term. Uh, I don't think it's going to sort out in the short term. It's going to sort out eventually, but I think it's going to take longer than than people imagine. And I think if you and I have a conversation a year from now, um, I don't think those numbers are uh, – my prediction is they'll be back up to maybe – 70 or 75 percent of where they were in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not even a market that, that's that going, may, be, may be optimistic. Could be, and and that's not a market that's going to demand or be demanding a lot of pilots. Yeah, I think the challenge against it, if I were to speculate, is not necessarily about growth, but in what will happen to attrition, because. So how many pilots who have been furloughed or, or who have been lost in this will come back, will be aged uh, appropriately to come back, um, things like that. I mean, one of the things that, that does concern me when we have a downturn like this, whether it's for this reason or for an economic reason, is, I mean, I've seen it on the inside of the avionics industry and, and, and in others. An industry suffers in the long term when you lose when you really do lose the talent that doesn't come back. Uh, we, we are in such a specialized industry that the, that the knowledge that really makes us tick in some cases is with a very a relatively small number of people. Um, and that's hard for, a com- for companies to recover from and from, from even airlines if all of a sudden there's a lot of people retired to recover from when they do get some volume, even if it's not back to the basics. Yeah. And uh, I had a, a fairly good glimpse, inside glimpse of uh, <coughs> of Southwest, which is an exceptionally well-run airline, and you know, and had a war chest. They were in a good position to uh, uh, to weather this. They've done some major buyouts, uh, but they are potentially still facing a significant restructuring if things don't things don't start to turn around pretty soon. Uh, and that kind of sets you back, you know, in the case of Southwest, what is it? It set them, sets them back to uh, 
1999 or something. I mean, that's basically what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're reducing the size of the airline. Now you have to start all over again and start growing it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then all the, all the associated industries, you know, all the vendors and the maintainers and all the rest of it. Yeah. And again, it depends if every, like we said, every different part of the industry has a different challenge to face. It may be for airlines that if all of a sudden you, you can, as long as you can staff it, maybe your costs are lower if you can staff it with younger, uh, you know, pilots and be able to have do you, something like have that. Have you flown airlines recently? No, I have not. I have would not, you? Uh, would I? Uh, yeah, I, I think I would, but uh, it would be for very specific purposes. Uh, I'm, I, I would be uh, reluctant to the degree that um, it, it'd have to be a, it'd have to be a trip that I didn't have another option for. Yeah. Uh, because I've been reaching out to the uh, airline unions and the pilot unions and the, uh, you know, directly to pilots and saying, you know, what's your sense of this? What's going on? Infections among your own uh, airlines. And it is just, it's just scattershot. No one has any useful data. Hmm. You know, you oh, well, I heard this or you heard that, but because uh, I was, my theory was that, you really wanted to know the risk of an airline or you needed to know how many flight attendants were infected. So, so let me turn the question around as the host onto you, would you, and what are your thoughts on flying commercial? About the same as yours. Uh, you know, a month ago I was saying, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm ready now, but now with the recent spike, so, you know, the prevalence of this uh, virus is really high. And so if I get on a airplane, it's likely to be full because that's what they're doing. They can't make any money at 40% load factors. Right. It's a lot fewer flights. Okay. So if you're going to sit next to somebody, assuming they are wearing a mask, you know, if that person's infected, you're, you have a pretty good chance of getting infected too. Because the mask is a, is, is a mitigation, but it's probably a weak mitigation. So, you know, I'm kind of on, on, on the fence about it. That's why I wanted to know about the flight attendants. Mm. You know, if, uh, if the flight attendants had a, uh, low rate of infection, then that would tell me that, uh, well, okay. It's not, uh, the risk is not as great as I think because flight attendants have to do everything passengers do. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're more exposed for longer for the day and they have to go through the terminal and all the rest of it. Yeah. Very good point. Have any, so, has anyone released any data that you're aware of on that? Well, I've got, I've got uh, queries into two of the unions. You know, where are you with this? And uh, they're not getting back to me yet. Hmm. I would imagine they, they, everyone's being very, very careful about releasing that type of data right now, even though it would be so helpful to us. Yeah, the, um, the UPS union uh, re- released data, and, and, and their, their infections among pilots are going up. Quite a bit. I saw that, and that's Which concerning, makes no of sense. course, because it, they're not around. I, they're around boxes. They're not around people. But that's something, what I was something's say. driving that. That's that's so, what I was exactly what I was going to say. How concerning is that it, when that when that report of cargo airline uh, of prevalence of COVID uh, among their employees and pilots when they don't have passengers? So I made the assumption that well, it must be much higher among the the passenger airlines and the flight attendants. So let me just ask. Well, the answer doesn't come back yet, but it could mean that uh, they don't know. 
they don't want to know or they know when they're not saying. Well, and, and of course, unfortunately, there is probably a, a, a significant uh, catch-22 there for them of safety and reporting and, the, and, yeah. and getting information about, about that versus hurting their own industry. Absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't envy them the decision-making they have to do. Yeah. And I can sit here in my little uh, office and just stay away from it all. Yeah. Well, hopefully, Paul, we're, uh, you, you know, th- this again, we'll, we'll start to see some, some brightness around the horizon. I think that the longer that we've, we've had this new normal, the normal that we've been, that we've been in this kind of environment, um, the more wonderful, even incremental improvement is. Yeah. Um, it doesn't take it, it. We talk about returning to, you know, pre COVID activities and, and, and worlds and, and numbers and sales and all these kinds of things. But to me, uh, I look at it and just say, God, how wonderful would it be to be at air venture next year? You know, like it doesn't have to be, everything doesn't have to be back. I just want to see some improvement. Yeah. Well, uh, I interviewed Jack Pelton a few months ago about this and he seemed to agree that uh, it would take a vaccine to do that. And I, and I think that's true too, to, yeah. to ensure a show that's large enough to be economically practical. Right. Going to have a vaccine, I think, and it should be well distributed enough by then to, to, to make a difference. Sound fun. I'm not so sure, but, uh, air venture. Yeah. I think it'll, it'll probably happen. That would be that would be absolutely wonderful. And and again, as as always, one of the things that I have believed very very passionately is um, we are an industry that's built for this. And and I say that because if you you go back five years, you go back two years, and you ask people what's going on, it's like, geez, how many people with four seat aircraft fly alone? How many people only fly with their spouse or their significant other or maybe their kids? Like we we have the ability to operate and we're used to operating um, in an environment that I think is, is safe for GA. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I hope more people do it. And I, and I hope we, uh, we keep getting every time that you get on there and, and look at flight aware and start seeing what's up there, more 172s and more 152s. And, and we just keep going out there. Okay. And, and, and again, you know, thank you so much for everything that you do. I'm looking forward to seeing that article that you mentioned uh, on uh, engine uh, outages. You said it's about sudden stoppages. Yeah, article's been done. I'm working on the video now. Excellent. It, it's just fantastic. Uh, I, again, I encourage everyone uh, check out Aviation Consumer and AvWeb, of course. Um, you really want to get some, some fantastic reporting and get to see Paul Bertarelli's writing. It's just you know, again, thank you so, so much for taking your time this evening and joining us here on Social Flight Live. It's, uh, My pleasure. it's a great opportunity. Uh, to everyone else who's out there, again, uh, just like to, uh, again, encourage you for everything. Check out socialflight.com. And we have some great shows coming up as well. We're here every Tuesday night live at 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, if you do get some messages uh, that you see as far as your invitation that shows different times, we apologize for that. Uh, go to webinar for some reason shows you GMT and also shows you a date that the show actually began in our series. But at the title, you'll always have every Tuesday 
8 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next Tuesday event on December 8th, Mike Bush is here talking about engine oils and engine break-in. On Tuesday, December 15th at 8 p.m., Kevin Lacey from Airplane Repo is going to be here for a fun evening. And on Tuesday, December 22nd, Christmas week at 8 p.m. Eastern, we'll be meeting with the North American Aerospace Defense Command NORAD and learning uh, a little bit more about what they do and, of course, uh, the history of their Santa tracker. Until next time, thank you so much, Paul. I do appreciate it, and thank you to everyone who's joined us here on Social Flight Live. Have a wonderful evening. Blue skies. 